This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Expensive Togs. Iraqi Hero. Horror Movie Essentials Part 2. And the Adoption of Paper. Meet pop-up juncture Nazis with wolf guns blazing. Open a whoop-ass can on European slavers in 1850s Brazil. Rev your furiously fast Ferrari through the underworld. If you've been itching to try your hand at some or all of these activities, you're in luck. That's because our friends at Atlas Games are launching an adventure subscription plan for Feng Shui 2. That's right, the game Robin designed. Members get free PDFs, early access to new adventures, and 10% off cover price. If the program gets 350 subscribers by January 1st, Atlas anticipates releasing four new adventures in 2021, plus more action-packed new material in the future. If you're interested in making this program a reality, or if you just want your new supplements delivered right to your door, you should sign up for a subscription. Visit atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription to learn more and subscribe. You'll only be charged when Atlas Games ships you a buck. And you can cancel anytime. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash FS2 subscription. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more to the gaming hut. And look around the gaming hut. We got... Uh, well, we don't have balloons or confetti or noisemakers because, uh, although we had New Year's, we didn't have New Year's, but it is 2021. So perhaps Peter Frampton is coming alive with just a little bit of hope in his eyes that he didn't have <laughs> last year. The miniatures are maybe just got that new coat of paint. You know what? They do have new coats, Robin, because we're talking about not just coats, not just clothing, but Personal goods of all kinds, thanks to a question from beloved Patreon backer, Nicola Wilson, who mentions and asks, in a pre-industrial society, food and especially clothing were incredibly expensive, relatively speaking. How can I make this sort of thing fun in an investigative game? A lot to unpack, uh, not just our, our mink pelisses and our good linens, but uh, the whole question itself robin so right. so let us begin to unpack our voluminous wardrobe which has one ermine robe in it and that's it and we paid 400 ducats for it exactly uh, because of course uh, as uh, dedicated students of the middle ages uh, know uh, in that era in particular but also previous to that things that we take for granted in the modern manufacturing area were indeed often quite expensive especially and the further you were up uh, obviously on the uh, class level then as now the more expensive things could become. And uh, we have talked about food being treasured before a couple of times, but in the context of F20 games. And I think the premise here is, uh, since we're talking investigative games and about actual history, that you are playing in a historical uh, society that is more like some recognizable world than F20 is. Because I think if you're playing, uh, you know, typical... Uh, beat up the bad guys fantasy game the answer to that is people do not want 
the details of the real Middle Ages. <laughs> or <laughs> anywhere near world, their dice. Anywhere near what's going on. But here, we're in a realer, uh, perhaps not real, but realer version of history. And one in which we're trying to solve mysteries. Because uh, the further away you get from a recognizable reality, the harder it becomes to... Uh, do investigative games. So, so let's assume, and, and of course the ex- expensiveness of clothing is never the m- biggest difference between uh, a medieval society and a typical fantasy game world that would of course be reserved for the uh, role of the church and the class structure. <laughs> yes. Among other things, <laughs> both, both things that people do not want in their games that were central to that presence and or absence of fireballs might also come up once or twice. Yes. Well, you could have fireballs and the church in a class system. But yes, people, you certainly could. Not to. The fireballs might affect the class system, if not the church. <laughs> they, they, they would they would be a, a, a mandarinate marker, I'm sure. Whether or not you could cast a fireball would rapidly determine where you were in the class system. But that's a different question that we were not asked. <laughs> so, in this case, I think that the, the nubby sticking up point uh, is the question of fun. Because obviously you can make it part of the the setting. You can have characters describe their 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 two suits of clothing, the court wear and the everyday literally wear, and then you know sort of just play into that a little bit. But is that fun? I, I think the fun of investigating involves either spotting imposters or dressing up as an imposter your own self, and then. That can be sort of uh, the clothes literally make the man in this case. And so maybe they're a bit of a MacGuffin that they're or a side quest. So before you can go into court to find out who murdered the astrologer, you have to get yourself a, a mink police and a cloth of gold tunic and pointy shoes that are made of of uh, calf skin, not stupid wooden clogs like you wear because you're a stupid peasant. And figuring out how to get the clothing is maybe part of the adventure and whether that's just, Oh, we're going to go blackmail a noble who we happen to know is carrying on with uh, illicit fireball casters or the orcs or, you know, depending on exactly what the situation is and then just blackmail him out of his garments, or we're going to, you know, set up a counterfeit tailoring ring in which we're putting together court garments for anyone who wants to sneak into court and get up to activities. Right. So there's all manner of possibilities, right? Right. And of course we don't want to leave out the classic adventure trope, which is conking the guy on the head in order to steal his outfit. Yeah. Could anything be more fun than that? Uh, well, first of all, make sure you have a system that allows you to do a, mm-hmm. a head conk. That's a, right. a, a big design question in, in every game is, uh, can you do that scene without also having them then, uh, have a shortcut to just murdering them afterwards. So right. assuming it is possible in your system, as it is with any uh, game, of course, designed by uh, you or I can. Yes. Y- you can do that. Uh, now, the fact that things are expensive then uh, brings us into the question of, well, what about crime? So you could have the theft of expensive togs uh, be the mystery that you uh, start out investigating. So Someone clonked me on the head and took my garments. <laughs> it could be. They were giggling. They must have had fun. Use that as your first trace. Well, that's a short mystery because you, you then just, oh, sorry, that was us last week. Here you go. We got a, a blood stain on the sleeve, but other than that. Right. But, uh, for example, a uh, now it's, it's less, I think, sympathetic if it's like the Duke complaining that his 
400 ducat outfit with the cape has been stolen. You care less about that. But what if it's the tailor who's had to go, uh, you know, he had to put down a deposit and pay for all the gold thread and all, all of the, the uh, bangles and baubles mm-hmm. and, and his own investment of time and effort and that of his apprentices. And suddenly the outfit has been stolen. And uh, so you uh, want to save the uh, the tailor because otherwise he's going to end up in the dungeon for having annoyed the duke for failing to deliver and possibly for losing all of the duke's ducat worths of gold thread. Uh, so you've got someone sympathetic who you want to uh, solve the mystery on uh, behalf of. And uh, indeed, we could flip the previous thing on its head and it, it could have been stolen by someone trying to work an imposture at court, or it could be someone who's just going to sell it in the black market. Probably in this particular medieval town, everybody is going to know that the the Duke's golden robes have been stolen. But if you, you know, take it to Bremen or to some other town, even not so far away, the whole idea of jurisdiction and distance and who knows what, uh, they, they may actually be just a, a Togs stealing ring that you're trying to, uh, to break up. And of course, if that seems a little uh, anodyne, we know that the way mysteries work is that uh, there's always a bigger, a scarier, more terrifying truth behind the initial reason that you begin to investigate. And so you can uh, find out the, the real reason, uh, you know, is someone trying to create a homunculus of the Duke? Is it uh, a, a guild of sorcerers who have to all be uh, from the most wretched classes but dress up? As, uh, as dukes and duchesses in order to attend uh, this summoning ritual that's going to uh, bring uh, Yogg-Sothoth into the world. Whatever it is, uh, that can be your opening uh, premise that can take you uh, into the mystery and gives you a, a cool sort of change of pace uh, from the usual, oh, this guy got murdered, or a more typical robbery to uh, something that uh, tells you something about the world and, and the setting, but still is a conventional mystery. You you can also, of course, have the uh, theft not be carried out necessarily get a hold of the garments, but to actually do, you know, to knock the Duke down a peg in his, you know, social career. Because obviously, if you showed up at court with last year's, you know, cloth of gold, you, you know, maybe that's a little bit of an eye turn. You, you If you're in one of the sort of more uh, Baroque, courts you're let's say you're in the 16th 17th century and now it's about impressing the the monarch and uh showing up and showing off so someone stealing another duke's clothing is engaged in subtle court positioning and uh that that can be you know your goal maybe as player characters you are expert tailoring thieves maybe you even do tailoring magic maybe that's how the, the magic works is, uh, just as in real life, you sewed amulets or made little patterns with the stitches that indicated, you know, a, a sigil or a talisman. And, and that's in the clothes. So you are capable of making magical clothes. So you're in the tailoring scene in the, in, you know, London or, or Prague or wherever. And also, therefore, you're wired into court gossip and, Who's positioning how, who's sleeping with whom, who's buying whom presents for their mistress and whatnot. And that's your angle in. And it's a, it's a game of princes that's going on under the guise of simple clothes robbery. And maybe you get to think, can we, you know, 
if we like the Duke, if the Duke has done us a solid, if he's uh, tipped us off to those sorcerers, uh, maybe, you know, the, the adventure is putting together a uh, sumptuous garment in the least amount of time. Maybe the adventure is figuring out who stole his robes and stealing them back. But the clothes are not just clothes. They are also social markers in every way. So we've alluded to impersonating, but also they're a way to gauge, you know, which Duke or which uh, or courtier rather is uh, in the better position at a court that is concerned with such things, which is most courts that are proud of their own wealth and power. So you, you're talking not just Queen Elizabeth, but the Holy Roman Emperor's courts of Muscovy, obviously the courts of France going back to the uh, 16th century. You know, before that, they were too poor and involved in murdering each other to be super fashion conscious. But that's before the Italians came to bring civilization to France. And, and I mentioned the Italians, so obviously the Medici's and the Sforzas and all those guys would also have got uh, strong thoughts on court fashion and how you can't possibly be wearing that hat again. So it can sort of have a little bit of a skullduggery, Vancean twist, as well as also being a real on, you know, game of princes so that. Uh, the, the, the court manipulation is the thing and the clothing are your, is your doorway into it. Because again, you know, the magic of, of seamstery. Right. And speaking of magic seamstery, one way to make it fun for the players is to actually literally imbue pieces of clothing with magic. And it could be, you know, here's your, it's a beautiful, uh, uh, velvet doublet that is also armor. Uh, which I think uh, lots of players uh, would covet for their characters because then they can go normally around town, not looking like they're armored to mm-hmm. the teeth, or probably more in keeping with what you're suggesting, they are something that have uh, some sort of social power. So, you know, wearing this mantle uh, gives you a bit of an aura of the snow god, and therefore you're able to uh, chill the words of your uh, adversaries in their throat and that there are uh, different thing and particularly if your system has some sort of uh, social combat or social recognition even like in a gumshoe game they can give you a free push of a interpersonal ability or a free point spend uh, let's say and uh, so there's something that you know you might as uh, as players you might want to get your hands on and uh, that therefore you know uh, be a, a whole MacGuffin where you go and get the snow god's mantle before you head off to uh, to court in order to uh, smack down your adversaries. I guess we should get to the whole food angle. And again, the idea that something is valuable means that it needs to be guarded. So whether it's a, you know, the, the guilt that is going to be uh, brushed onto the f- uh, fish at the big banquet, or uh, there's a special kind of particularly flavorful boar, you might be uh, guarding the caravan, uh, which then leads to uh, trouble when the uh, rivals of the Duke attack it in order to make sure that his banquet sucks or just hungry people. And then you have that whole Robin Hood dilemma of, oh, look, I'm working for the people who have money, but the people who have money are terrible in this world. What do I do? Yes. In this world, not in any other world, in Robin. The, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, we're playing. That's how you know it's a fantasy game. Based on Earth. Ah. <laughs> yes. Ah. Ah. Uh, and so then you can, and, and you can have the whole uh, idea again that certain foods are uh, valuable not just in and of themselves but also are uh, magical but they're you know these magic carrots are the equivalent of potions which means that you the gm can have the uh the players seeking the magic carrots but they can only eat the carrot once and you can give them a one-use cool thing so uh, the idea is there is to sort of hook that into uh, what is interesting and 
uh, it may uh, a mystery there, for example, then is well. So it may be that a particular spice is discovered. There's a supply of it. Everybody wants to know where it is. Where does it come from? In the real world spice trade, as we've alluded to before, those were big time trade secrets, and people, uh, particularly the people living in those areas, were sometimes killed in order to preserve them. So uh, you could be uh, seeking vengeance against the uh, spice traders who burned down your island while you were off on another island and killed your family, or you could be trying to find out uh, where the source of this particular spice is so that you can wrest the monopoly of it away from the uh, evil duke uh, who wants to oppress the people and give it to the good duchess who wants to uh, spread the wealth around. Or at least spread it to you, which is, you know, we, we can't expect uh, too large a view from our, from our player <laughs> characters. And you can, of course, go as far down either of these rabbit holes as you want. We, we sort of alluded to the notion of, of magical tailoring and, and garments that, that carry with them specific spell effects. If in, if your players are fashion minded or want to be fashion minded, I could imagine a world in which you, you know, have sort of a gradation of, of clothing. So you go from linen, which is sort of a blank canvas and you can write magic onto it, you know, up through cloth of gold, which is inherently magical and has, you know, automatic pluses uh, to whatever. And then the various patterns can be the various types of spells, uh, ornaments and, and, and additions can be, you know, chained spells that you link in. So you see someone with a, a cloth of gold cape with, uh, a band of ermine and a band of mink. And you're like, Oh, this guy's got a puissant magic and we don't know what it is. And maybe that's part of the thing is that you're not the only spell casting tailors around that. You know, that there's spell casting tailors in other cities or elsewhere in your city, the, the evil guild that's in league with the evil Duke who doesn't want to give you money. And so a lot of it can be about trade secrets. Uh, what does that pattern look like? Can we get it off the Duke? Uh, maybe by distracting him with uh, an attractive courtesan while we riffle through his wardrobe real fast and try and figure out uh, what magic spells our rivals have come up with. And it part of it can be industrial espionage as well as just making uh, a velvet doublet of plus one uh, armor the, the, that everyone in the party wants. Uh, in addition to using the garments for their social and political purposes uh, and and even for, you know, sort of more pure magic investigation, you also have got some degree of, you can't let the secret of the pointy shoes of fireball casting uh, be the exclusive property of the evil tailors guild from across town. Uh, then you'd have a fireball gap, Robin, and you, and you know what that leads to. That leads to us going back to the other question we weren't asked, which as we all know on this show means instead we should go to another segment uh, on the other side of this exciting commercial. The second edition of Mutant City Blues by Robin D. Laws. And now with added Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is now in print from Pelgrane Press. Grab your Quaid diagrams and solve the crimes of a near future where 1% of the population wields superpowers. As members of the elite heightened crime investigation unit, you and your fellow detectives solve crimes involving the city's mutant community. When a mutant power is used to kill, you catch the case. When it's a mutant victim in the chalk outline, you get the call. 
New features include the ability to go beyond the badge with a private investigator campaign frame. A simplified push system to amplify your investigative abilities. Expanded chase rules. And a spiffy new cover by comics artist extraordinaire, Gene Ha. Find it at your favorite retail store. Or use the voucher code DIAGRAM2020 to get 15% off at the Pograin store. The retinal scan that you had to undergo and the extensive background check indicate that you're once more listening to the Tradecraft Hut, uh, the hut in which we discuss espionage, uh, national security, and uh, often with Draculas in it, as, as is the case this time, because we're going to look at a case in 2006, 2007, somewhere in there, uh, when the Pentagon, as par- part of its propaganda efforts, uh, directed, in this case, at the uh, population of Iraq, but also they had add-ons and upgrades for other populations. They uh, got together with a Czech company called U-Turn. This was an up-and-coming tech company in the pre-smartphone age. Previously, they'd been trying to figure out how to uh, get people to look at softcore content on their pre-smartphones. But then they got hired by a uh, department of the Pentagon to create a first-person shooter video game uh, called a Rocky Hero. Uh, so we're going to uh, look at that and, of course, what happens when the aforementioned King of the Vampires, uh, as we all know, uh, he was active, I believe, Ken, in, in the global war on terror. He was. He was uh, active on his own agenda, but uh, superficially working with MI6 and the Project Edom. Right. So this will have to involve Project Edom getting wind of an American project but and getting his claws into it, but I, I think we can do some make-em-ups to, to get around that. So mm-hmm. I believe this story was broken. Certainly, I read about it in a book called Way of the Knife by Mark Mazzetti, and the Pentagon officer uh, behind this. Uh, it turns out there are a lot of colorful characters involved in the global war on terror. People were making things up as they went along, and some uh, loose cannons and, and freelancers all got involved. And uh, uh, this particular officer, who in the movie version will be played by Jeff Garland. <laughs> Imagine Jeff Garland smoking a stogie and, and sweating and weaseling his way around the system. This guy uh, was very notorious for figuring ways around and through things. So one of the things about military propaganda is you are not supposed to propagandize your own population. That's, that's somebody else's job. So you have to go through all of these additional layers of, of pretext. And also you want to make sure that if you're distributing a video game, say, called a Rocky Hero, that it doesn't say on the bottom, copyright the Pentagon. That right. yeah. obviates the entire point of it. So in this case, he wound up partnering with this company called U-Turn, which was run by a, a Czech national whose family fled then Czechoslovakia during the Prague Spring. Uh, so he was a, a fierce pro-American, uh, uh, anti-Soviet uh, perspective uh, there. And so, so they had to disguise where this was coming from. So uh, they set up a company in the Seychelles uh, in order to be the company of record behind this video game. And in order to make uh, it even more interesting, they uh, also partnered with Wyand.Nettel, uh, which was a uh, small communications company on a reserve in Oklahoma, so that they would then get preferential treatment in the Pentagon uh, bidding process. And I'm sure that the production of Iraqi Hero was enormously beneficial to the Wyandot because... Those things always work out the way they're supposed to. So it's probably beneficial to at least one Wyandotte. Yes. Some 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 Wyandots were aided by this. 
Uh, so the goal is there's an Iraqi police station. You have come upon the plans for a uh, an insurgent attack, and you're trying to get to the police station to let them know so they can avert the attack. And, of course, you're shooting your way there because it's a first-person shooter. shooter. Right. And it was created for young Iraqi men, uh, but they were also designing modules so that uh, they could do a version for Morocco and Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia, which I guess and those are not all, you know, overt war zones in the global war on terror, but they're trying to uh, reach young men in the foreign fighters uh, demographic. And unlike a lot of propaganda, uh, it seems to work on a very simplistic idea of what actually persuades people to do things. I think we know in other spheres that persuasion is ferociously difficult, but apparently if you just give somebody a first-person shooter, they will change their minds about America, or at least you can convince a Pentagon department to pay a lot of money. To well, I mean, this you can, this is one of those beautiful horseshoe theory moments because you know that the, the criticism of call of duty and it's uh, various clones and buddies is that it's mindless propaganda and it's turning America's teens into unthinking Reagan worshipers because Reagan's sending you out to fight uh, communism in the new call of duty. So those guys in the Pentagon must agree on the effects of first person shooters that, you know, once you start playing it, you uh, you just become seduced to the dark side, whichever whichever dark side it is that you want. Um, and with the Pentagon, they're like, great, that's what we are. We, we want to seduce you to our side. That's literally our job. So right. it's, you know, it, it's not that this particular, um, uh, I can't even say criticism, but this particular line of uh, reasoning, again, not a good word. Th- this particular th- uh, notion is exclusive to Pentagon planners crossing their fingers and hoping um it seems to be common in a lot of commentary on video lots games lots of people believe in the power of, of symbolism yes yep and so uh it, this didn't come in a, into a vacuum obviously the pentagon was aware that call of duty was super popular in the middle east and uh pretty much all throughout the, the world people love playing american terrorist killing heroes of all sorts of stripes and it was not even so much we want them to want to kill terrorists, which is great, but also we want them to, uh, we want to find out who they are. And we want to data mine them. We've done a data mine them and find out who they talk to and who they play with and who they walk around with. And maybe there might have been some notion that these would be, you know, ways to get nodes in the informational space network that they're beginning to map for Iraq at this time. Or maybe it's just a, you know, well, we're looking for our keys out of the lamppost because that's where the light is. Uh, sort of notion you would think that you would want to be data mining i don't know al-qaeda as opposed to iraqi video game players but that's that's me i'm not i'm not the the smart fellows at socom right but, but this idea was like good enough to get approved and another one from the same <laughs> shop was not approved was uh furlong also proposed uh air dropping armor-plated televisions into central asia and north africa which then had they would have satellite receivers so that you could then see your pro-American programming uh, on these armor-clad televisions, which did not come to pass because I guess Dracula had no use for armored televisions. No, he doesn't approve because they're um, uh, they're too hard to move around your castle. They're they're not uh, convenient, and sl- he likes the slimline stuff. Yeah, the I mean, that's basically sort of an attempt to upscale the old SOE notion of smuggling radio receivers into Europe during World War Two 
that were tuned to hear uh, the BBC. That was SOP uh, back in the day. And the more people you could uh, spread that uh, evangel to, the, the better the SOE liked it. Again, I, I'm not sure that th- that was the big tipping point for someone was, well, I was okay with the Nazis occupying my country until I heard the British say it was bad. But, you know, again, uh, it's the same apparat that's devising the BBC in the first place is saying we should get more people to listen to it. Uh, so we can see where Furlong might have picked up the idea, uh, the notion that you need to airdrop armored televisions when everyone is getting a, a cell phone is maybe a little bit uh, last century thinking that the job is just to capture eyeballs that are already on another screen, as opposed to give them a large clunky and unchangeable screen. The the technological curve is different in 2007 than it was in 1941. Right. Well, this proves once again that the Pentagon doesn't approve everything. Right. right that, that there is actually a limit somewhere. Right. And I, as I was alluding to, perhaps uh, Dracula didn't didn't care about that, but he did care. We know. Uh, it's not in Mazzetti's book, but where did right. I tell you that Dracula was very interested in this? Uh, Ken, and you're going to tell us why. Right. Well, um, one of the things that uh, Dracula is always on the on the lookout for is other sorts of vampire. You know, he wants to run them. He wants to control them. He wants to, you know, break them to his will. There is a uh, sort of vampire that that proliferates in uh, symbolic communication. Uh, you can look at uh, Fritz Leiber's great story, The Girl with the Hungry Eyes, about a vampire woman who draws attention from billboards painted to look like her and uh, feeds off men's interest in those billboards. That same technology obviously uh, gets used on, you know, cell phone and internet communication, you know, uh, the hot Russian teens who can't wait to be your Facebook friend, whatever it happens to be. Those are all variations of possibly their Renfields of this same vampire who's jumped from advertising to the internet, or maybe it's a new kind of vampire. I uh, allude to it in, I think, a page XX uh, piece a while back. So possibility one, Dracula has heard about this uh, new vampire uh, recruiting and drinking through the internet, and he wants a piece of it. And since he doesn't know anything about making video games, he thought this sounded like a good idea and backed it. And it was as big a disappointment to him as it no doubt was to the Pentagon. Although I, I guess Iraqi hero had some pickup just because who doesn't like a first person shooter, but I, I, I guess it didn't stick around. Right. Well, in order to be a scenario, though, it has to have been some use to uh, Dracula in a way right. that causes our nice black agents characters to be chased by somebody with uh, guns and or fangs. Yeah. And, and in this case, he would have used it as a stalking horse to try and get the attention of this other video vampire who, again, uh, th- this is something that, that has been documented that Hezbollah and uh, the IDF both have basically catfished young, lonely men on the other side with pretend women who, you know, are like, hey, so where are you going to this weekend? Oh, I'm up on the Golan Heights. Okay, thanks. Good to know. And then um, they they get that information. Obviously, both Hezbollah and the IDF are working with this mysterious vampire woman who's sending out her uh, her appearance to uh, draw uh, power. Uh, Dracula maybe is attempting to use Iraqi hero to just cut off some of her supply, or maybe he's trying to draw her into a system architecture that 
he personally doesn't control, but he controls through his uh, Czechoslovakian cutouts. Obviously, the Czechoslovakian lore going back to, you know, John D when he was in Prague is somehow involved in the, in the system architecture of this, of this thing. And of course, as you mentioned, they were previously trying to do softcore content on phones. And what does that imply? That implies that our video vampire lady was already present up in the U-turn phone game. So Dracula is possibly hunting her on uh, her own ground. And this is either a, a join me or it's a join me and die or join me or die ultimatum. And either way, you can have your characters, uh, your agents caught up in between the two of them, because obviously if the uh, video vampire can put men into her thrall, suddenly she's got a bunch of trained first person shooter players in her thrall and can send them, you know, run and gunning after the agents who are uh, rastered into their minds to be targets. And possibly it's a last starfighter situation where they're all a distributed mind controlling uh, drones or um, uh, golems, or possibly it's uh, just a straight up, you know, Renfield brainwash situation where the video vampire has brainwashed these guys to go out and hunt uh, the agents down. Conversely, Dracula may have taken that and done it to create his own Renfields in, in this method. And he's extending his powers magically through the, uh, through the ones and zeros, uh, the Kabbalistic ones and zeros of the uh, computer code. Right. Because uh, we talked about uh, persuasion being difficult and uh, propaganda not necessarily being as effective as uh, the people paying uh, for it want it to be. But wait a minute, what if you have domination powers and can put them in the in a computer game? So yes, indeed, it might be an effective tool. Uh, and in fact, one thing that Dracula might do, or some other captive vampire, in order to prove his worth uh, without uh, doing anything that actually harms uh, his own interests is he could actually make the Iraqi hero uh, game or, or its equivalent uh, more effective for a while and have a bunch of people uh, come in and show up and uh, surrender at the real Iraqi police station. And, uh, oh boy, that really uh, helps out the, uh, the people in this particular department. And then, of course, uh, he's just doing that to earn cred. And uh, he's the one who's, who really controls the, the switches and all of those people and can then uh, cause them to uh, turn on their uh, apparent handlers uh, who might in fact be the player characters. Yeah. Or it might be a situation where if you're in the present day and this thing happened in 2007, you've got a sort of a Manchurian candidate situation where there's untold thousands of sleeper agents of Dracula or his rival vampire queen out there. And uh, they could be activated at any moment. They're like the, the deep uh, cover uh, assassins in Bourne, that the guys who are at the top of the leaderboards basically have got so much vampiric juju uh, fed into them that they are capable of sort of super soldier type effects or full on Renfield uh, powers and abilities. And uh, those are the guys that get le unleashed and sent after the player characters and the player characters, the agents are thinking we are being chased by a lot of mid thirties Iraqi guys all of a sudden. What's, what's the connection there or mid thirties, as you say, you know, maybe Moroccan guys, because the Moroccan version of it was the one that Dracula really cared about. And Iraq was just the test bed, but he really wanted to control Morocco because of its proximity to the, the old, uh, 16th century pirate manuscripts that are in Casablanca or maybe in Egypt because of the pyramids. I mean, that's a little obvious, a little on the nose, but why not? And for that matter, if he's got uh, control of the program or control of 
whoever it is who runs the program, he can say, I, I would like a Romanian version, please. Yeah, exactly. Distribute it here. Yes, Bucharest hero. And then, you know, you can either go up through the, you know, video game chain, because obviously U-Turn is probably not in business anymore. Their intellectual property belongs to some giant faceless European conglomerate headed by who can say? Maybe Dracula. But a lot of, a lot of dead games wind up being sold off like office furniture and companies that don't even know they own computer games own computer games. So maybe Dracula took what he wanted. He didn't care about the, the, the corporate shell that went away and the player characters stumble on the original uh, backup data for uh, the game, the, the masters uh, of the game somewhere, you know, in a, in a big archive. And they're wondering, why are people being killed over this, over this video game master? What could it possibly be? And of, of course, it's because, oh, this is the one that has Dracula's domination cabalistically encoded into its ones and zeros. And this is the one that you can flip the switch and activate, assuming you still have players for the player base. And maybe getting the players to um, put together a, an A-list team of coders to build a modern version of Vampire Hero is a little bit outside the remit of Super Spies, but you can see it being a a long con run by another group of NPCs that either just thinks they've found a way to make a quick buck off someone else's code or someone else who has realized what can happen. And rather than, you know, fight Dracula over it is like, look, you know, I don't care if Dracula makes zombies, but if we can make zombies, everyone's a winner. Right. And if you have to uh, infiltrate uh, a top vampires volcano base and want to read as a thrall of that vampire, you have to sit down and play a bunch of Bucharest Hero for a while. And, uh, you know, maybe you've got maybe your techniques to uh, only read as a thrall without being one. Uh, maybe they'll work. But, you know, you need to go to that volcano base because that's where the file is. And also, I, I, I feel like any player characters confronted with a mysterious video game are going to play it, even though they know it's a terrible idea. And not out of decency to the GM, just out of a desire to do something. To, to play video games, I guess. If, if every group has the one person who needs to touch the gooey stuff. Yep. Now that we've hit a maxim, <laughs> it's time for us to uh, head uh, out of this segment and into uh, another hut. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush 
Rush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astvageln on drive-thru. See to it that we don't have to hawk our one good gold-trimmed robe by joining beloved Patreon backers exactly like... Robbie Carlton. Ruth Tillman. Steve Sigety. Lee Candelino. And Andrew Laliberti. The whir of the projector, the cigarette smoke stabbing up through the beam, the whatever that is on the floor, welcome us to our center seats in the cinema hut today, as it was at the end of 2020, is decorated with uh, monsters and ghosts and vampires and all manner of, of fun things, still black and white, because the Horror Essentials series continues into the sound era and let's see, Robin, if we can get through the 1930s in, in this episode. Right. And you'll notice that uh, these titles all cluster at the beginning of the 30s. Uh, there was an intense horror boom. Uh, this is the one with all that really, uh, you know, there were previous versions of a lot of these uh, stories, especially the ones that were based on classic works of literature. But these are the films that sort of cement uh, all of the tropes for the modern audience and are still uh, eminently watchable today. So let's start off with uh, speaking of Dracula, Dracula, 1931, uh, directed by Todd Browning. Uh, this is another adaptation of the Stoker novel. Its emphasis is uh, on uh, the hypnotic power of uh, Dracula. Bela Lugosi becomes one of the first horror stars. It's a name that's going to come up again. And he. Uh, it's sort of hard to look at him today because all of the, uh, in one sense, because all of the uh, sort of fake Dracula impressions are sort of based on him. And he doesn't seem like the matinee idol that he was on the Hungarian stage when he played this in the twenties. But uh, if you get past a couple of uh, minutes of it and overcome that, his strange power as an actor uh, comes into play. And also this has one of the great all time Renfields in it uh, played by uh, Dwight Fry. Yes. The legendary Dwight Fry. Uh, yeah. The, the trouble with Dracula, which I've addressed before is that Todd Browning apparently lost interest in it about an act in. It's very strongly based on the stage play in which, as you say, Bela Lugosi, not just in the Hungarian stage, but on Broadway, had become the face and voice of Dracula with an authentic Transylvanian accent, uh, we'll mention here. But the, the, the play is a terrible play, and it's very stagey and location locked and as uncinematic a thing as you could want. And not coincidentally, the best part of the a movie is the part that is not in the play, the uh, voyage of Renfield in this uh, iteration to uh, Castle Dracula, where he meets Dracula, is welcomed in and is um, uh, driven mad by the experience. Uh, that first act of the film is, is what the whole reputation of the movie rests on. I guess we should mention that it's the brainchild of the producer, Carl Lemley, the guy that ran universal who realized that uh, horror could be big when they re-released one of our other uh, examples from, from last time, the Phantom of the Opera, and they released it with sound. They put in a musical score and uh, re-released it into uh, theaters in 1930, and it made a million depression dollars uh, with a re-released Lon Chaney movie. And that was sort of the test bed to see if they could do a Lon Chaney Dracula. Lon Chaney sadly died before they could get around to it. But that's when they grabbed Lugosi off Broadway and put him in, and uh, the rest is history. And it's still 
a, a riveting film and worth watching in a lot of ways. But certainly after the first act, uh, you're going to get madder and madder at Hamilton Dean's stage play. Right. And, and I think it's not that Browning loses interest, but just that it becomes sta- a stage play adaptation, which was very much happening in early talkies because suddenly the camera had to be fixed. They were, um, and so there's a big regression in the early part of the 30s uh, away from visual storytelling into, well, let's just film this stage play. And you're right that Dracula does suffer from that, but also there are enough indelible images and, and characterizations to uh, still make it a must-see if you're learning about horror or uh, helping someone else learn about horror. Exactly. And uh, again, the limitations of fixed cameras are, are not necessarily limitations. If you are James Whale making Frankenstein, also in 1931, a terrific a uh, movie on every level. Boris Karloff, of course, famously portrays uh, the monster originally credited as question mark because they wanted to imply that maybe James Whale had built a monster too. And I'm sure James Whale wanted to imply that because he was a guy who, who liked being James Whale and didn't care who didn't like him being James Whale. He was a character and a, and, a, and an exciting and, and a visually amazing director. I mean, even in 1931, he's doing things with, you know, uh, not just set construction, but with the way that he's shooting the sort of the, the, uh, crane shots and, and overhead shots that look like something out of a, out of a much later, like, a, you know, late thirties, early forties, uh, film vocabulary. He's, he's got a visual imagination to beat the band and he has the advantage of not being stuck with a stage play. So he's able to sort of pull out these powerful moments from Shelley's novel, twist them around. Obviously he loses the whole part where the monster learns French and discourses on philosophy, probably for the best. Um, but he creates, uh, again, indelible images that if you haven't seen the movie and you watch it, you may fool yourself into thinking, well, this is just the same boring Frankenstein, but this is where it began. And it began, I think with a power that uh, is greater than uh, Browning's Dracula, much as I love Dracula per se. Yes, this one is fully cinematic. Uh, it uh, has uh, more than one uh, great performance. Well, I guess Dracula has two great performances in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, Karloff, of course, is uh, Boris Karloff is brilliant as the monster. Uh, he Im- uh, imbues. Uh, he is the, a classic sympathetic monster, which is the opposite of uh, Dracula, who's uh, terrible and predatory. And Whale's use of space and vertical space sort of creates a sort of production design that you and I refer to as backlot gothic. And it's a, its own uh, world at Universal Studios and the surrealism and humor under, underlying it are, are all a part of that. Uh, next, we come to another literary adaptation, uh, which is Ruben Mamoulian's 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, with Frederick March. And uh, this is... I think uh, uh, Mr. Hyde features less in the horror uh, lexicon because you can't easily do sequels to it. People have done variations and different interpretations over the years. Uh, But this one, I think, is uh, a a really strong version in which March performs it without physical makeup transformation, but just uh, through the power of of acting and uh, Mm -hmm. another early uh, literary adaptation that uh, I think is a a must-see for 30s horror. A performance, in fact, that uh, Frederick March won the Academy Award for, Best Actor. So uh, even in 1931, um, or I guess only in 1931, people in horror films were getting the respect they deserved. 
1932, speaking of getting the respect we deserve, Todd Browning sort of resolutely puts Dracula behind him in a way with another horror film, Freaks, which is as unstagey and as wildly creative as Dracula is not. Uh, it's the story of, um, uh, well, it's a love triangle in the circus, but it's in the sort of sideshow part of the circus. So there's a strong man and there's a, a, a winged person and all manner of other sideshow freaks who are played in this case by actual uh, sideshow performers with their actual physical nature on display for horrific effect uh, by Todd Browning. And it's, it's quite a piece to watch even now. Uh, I think even if, you know, you've, you've sort of grown up with horror with uh, prosthetics and the edges sanded off a little bit, the sort of the raw hatred and raw emotion on display in freaks throughout is, is sort of unsettling over and above the, the storyline, which as I've alluded to is, is one involving a, a deadly love triangle. Right. And it's the beautiful, abled people who mm-hmm. are, uh, the bad people who we are rooting to see their uh, gain their comeuppance. Right. This essentially it came out and uh, was banned almost immediately and was unfindable for decades. And it surfaces again in the late sixties. And uh, you can look at some films and go, Oh, well you could never do this today. Well, you could never do this then or ever. Yes. Right. Oh yeah. At all. <laughs> and it basically uh, destroyed Browning's career. It follows on from, he did a number of sort of circus themed horror uh, gothic uh, films during the silent era. And uh, this sort of continues that uh, whole theme of, uh, you know, the, uh, of the underdog, the rejected people are the, the real heroes and the uh, people who uh, have uh, the status and are considered uh, beautiful and alluring are really the bad people who you can't, can't trust. So there's a real antinomian uh, streak in there that I, there's genuine hatred in it as you suggest, and it's uh, genuinely uh, upsetting uh, and on uh, all sorts of levels. Yeah. Uh, but, it, you know, you watch it once, you are never going to forget it, which I think is the the sign of, of a great film, um, that it's still with you, and you can bring those uh, scenes exactly into mind. Uh, Todd Browning's cinematographer on Dracula, Carl Freund, uh, the man who revisionists say is the, guy, is the reason that first act is great, made a movie of his own, in 1932, The Mummy, also starring Boris Karloff, and this one sort of coalesces a bunch of mummy lore from literature into a uh, a unified mummy myth. And so that is where you get uh, not just the notion that the mummy can turn into a normal person and walk around with his ancient Egyptian magic. You get the mummy's curse. You get the reincarnated uh, lost love from the past. All of our mummy elements, which have been in mummy literature, are pulled together for one great, strong story, something that will happen again uh, with the Wolfman, which we're almost certainly not going to get to today. But uh, the mummy is, again, like I say, you know the story. Uh, and again, it's Boris Karloff, this time not in uh, makeup, except for his initial mummy bandages. And he shows up throughout most of the movie as the sort of magically knowledgeable figure, Ardath Bay. And he uh, wanders about uh, being cryptic and weird and possibly involved in the mysterious deaths. Very exciting. Um, but he is, of course, secretly the mummy Imhotep, 
later on in the series, uh, the mummy's name changes to Karis for some reason, but accept no substitutions, ask only for Ardith Bay. Uh, and of course, our buddy Edward Van Sloan uh, from Dracula, who was Van Helsing, sort of in that, is uh, back in this one as a um, as as an Egyptologist, but also the uh, completely inert Harker, David Manners from that movie is in this as sort of the romantic hero who is no Brendan Fraser. Let's just say that. Yes. The, the stage play of Dracula is clearly a template for this. It is interesting for its moodiness and it's uh, sort of a strange allure and, and Carlos performance. The bandaged uh, uh, lurching mummy uh, shows up in the sequels, but is not a factor in this one. And of course, if uh, you're a hard no on anything smacking of Orientalism, you need to give the entire <laughs> mummy subgenre a pass. <laughs> Probably for the best. If if you are if you are a hard no on things smacky of Orientalism, you may not want to watch films made before, say, two thousand and ten. <laughs> Anyhow, uh speaking of things smacking of Orientalism, in this case smacking really hard in the head, uh you have King Kong by the great Marion Cooper and Ernest Chodesack, filmed in 1933. It's the story of another sympathetic monster, uh, the, the, the legendary Kong, uh, who is lord of an island of natives who do native-y things somewhere, mostly try not to be killed by Kong or the dinosaurs that live on their island. Obviously, uh, everyone remembers the climb up the Empire State Building, but the chase through the jungle is another part of King Kong that I think people sort of, uh, they, they sort of sleep on it, Robin. They don't remember how great that jungle sequence is in, in King Kong, or maybe they do, but they forget they saw it in King Kong. And it depends on how old you were when you first saw it, because parts of that world have only recently been restored. So the full mm. uh, early first act is now has been available since the DVD era, basically. Yeah. So this is the opening salvo in stop motion animation. It's an incredible uh, technical achievement. It's a strongly structured film. It doesn't have a lot of uh, yakking and exposition. Every scene is in there. It builds toward its uh, inevitable climax. The, the imagery at the end, the sympathetic monster, the folly of uh, Western man. It's uh, a tour de force. And uh, and the first kaiju movie, so um, and and essential uh, to understand uh, a whole thread of uh, uh, horror cinema. Uh, parts of this were uh, cut out immediately after release because they're deemed too disturbing, including a scene where uh, Kong uh, eats an entire streetcar full of people. The uh, the cuts mm -hmm. made Kong more sympathetic, uh, and uh, he killed a lot fewer innocent bystanders, but. Uh, now you can see the full version. Uh, next, we get to uh, a uh, a versus a Karloff versus uh, Lugosi uh, title, and this is one. Uh, this is the Black Cat by Edgar G. Ulmer, who produced uh, countless Poverty Row features, often with uh, essentially zero budget. Took a lot of uh, trashy garbage scripts and invested them uh, with uh, some sort of mysterious quality that makes them somehow watchable. But he made two. Genuine classics, and this is the earliest of them and the one that's a horror movie, The Black Cat, uh, 1934. Now, this is one where uh, the first time I saw it, I was a little sleepy, and that sort of uh, increased its dreamlike quality. I was possibly inventing bits of the film again. I've seen it subsequently, but no matter how many times I've seen it, I cannot keep the plot in my head because it is so peculiar. I can't even keep the plot in my head while reading a synopsis of the plot. 
But basically, <laughs> uh, can can you can you take a a whack at this sort of a mixture of mad scientist and uh, and bluebeard? Um, basically, our sort of viewpoint characters again the the blank and vanilla David Manners and uh, Julie Bishop, who I don't remember from anything else, uh, which tells you everything you need to know about the black cat, are sort of our are uh, empty shells through which we view the rivalry between Dr. Vitus Vertigast, uh, one of the greatest names in the history of film, uh, played by Lugosi, and his old friend, Hjalmar Pelzig, Boris Karloff, a mad architect. And so, obviously, you've got me on every level in this film. Uh, Pelzig's house is the beginning, I think, of uh, horror modernism, the notion that if you live in a modernist house, you are obviously in league with evil. Pelzig and uh, Vertigast rapidly reveal that they have a desperately messed up psychic uh, rivalry that uh, uh, Vernagast killed Pelzig's cat. Pelzig, uh, therefore, carries a black cat around with him to mess with Vertigast's mind. There is uh, human sacrifice. There's Satanism. Uh, obviously, Pelzig had married um, uh, uh, Vertigast's wife and killed her. Then uh, there was, oh, so much, so much stuff going on. You, you hate to give it away, but every time you think, well, this movie cannot get weirder, you are wrong. The whole thing is is very much in the old dark house tradition. It's just that the old dark house in this case is a starkly modernist house. The hideous family drama is slightly expanded beyond one bloodline. And it is Lugosi and Karloff, I think at the height of their powers, just acting up a storm as guys that don't just hate each other. They take a desperate, sadistic delight in torturing each other. And that is really where the meat of the of the movie is that and of course the amazing uh set decoration of this insane modernist structure that uh, pelzig is built in the literal middle of nowhere in europe so it's a it's an amazing film in the sense that it could not be anything else and work and it's a great just opium nightmare of a movie and for something <laughs> so utterly weird it was a big hit it was universal's top grossing title of 1934 and, and Almer's only hit movie. Yes. And, and in the tradition of Edgar Allan Poe movies, it has almost nothing to do with the Edgar Allan Poe story that it is theoretically based on. So right. well yes. done, Edgar Ulmer. Yeah. Well, we'll have to get to the sixties to get some uh, good Poe adaptations. Uh, but until then uh, we're going to uh, end with a, a sequel, uh, the bride of Frankenstein, James whale, 1935. Uh, this one uh, gets even more, uh, Baroque and obviously tongue-in-cheek and uh, playful. Uh, famously, this has Elf Elsa Lanchester as the as the bride in it, and uh, it uh, still has a, a sort of structural pull through the film that you wouldn't expect with a bunch of uh, different elements that Whale is playing with. But he uh, clearly is uh, has taken the license granted uh, him by the studio to uh, when he finally agreed to make a, a sequel to his previous big hit, and he. Uh, plays that uh, to the hilt. Yeah, and was deliberately putting things into the story so that they would, some of them would be taken out by the studio and by the censors, but that that let him leave stuff in that was very idiosyncratic, let's say. Uh, Dr. Pretorius, I think, is the new character in the film besides the titular bride that people remember and love, the great Ernest Thesiger playing him as the most ridiculously camp mad scientist 
of all time. I mean, you're talking about a guy who makes Dr. Frankenstein look normal. Uh, so it's, it's quite a, a triumph for him, a huge triumph for whale. And this is a movie that it has such a strong central story that all of the weird nonsense doesn't distract you from it. It just adds atmosphere and adds quality to it. While the very, very basic story from sort of the, the second third of, of Mary Shelley's novel in which, uh, Frankenstein is forcing the monster is forcing Dr. Frankenstein to build him a bride is the, is the core, uh, driving, uh, motive of, of the movie. It's, it's, it's an amazingly structured movie for something that when you watch it just seems like a whole lot of ridiculous nonsense. But then, you know, the, the central story is just super strong and super pure. And it, you know, goes to the then unbelievable and still pretty powerful ending, which I don't know if you can technically spoiler a movie from 1935, but on the odds, we're talking to intro people, you know, it's only 75 minutes and that ending is going to hit like uh, the ending of a, of a much later, much stronger, much longer movie. It, it's really, it, it's, a, it's a terrific, terrific story structure over and above its virtues as a mad nonsense thing to watch. Right. And the success of this sequel then leads Universal to start sequelizing uh, all of their horror titles and crossing them over. And uh, this is when the first horror boom becomes the first horror bust at the end of the uh, 30s. They, they just ring that bell too many times with too many inferior knockoff films and uh, horror initially uh, aimed at adults. Uh, it starts to become viewed as uh, sort of matinee kiddie movies. And uh, we have our first uh, horror lull, and that'll lead us uh, into next week uh, when we uh, return to Horror Essentials and uh, do the early 40s. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1% to the hard scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt. From the abusive warrens of the Internet to the lonely chambers of every human heart. From the toxic legacy of the Cold War. To the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons so we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back in history to fold, bend, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, uh, Ken, Time Incorporated would like you to find out what happens to the timeline if papermaking arrives in Europe ten centuries earlier, around the time of its first manufacture in China. Yeah, this is one of those things where we are introducing a change that is seemingly small, but goes to have enormous social 
repercussions. Uh, and it's a difficult one to sort of parse out. But I guess to start us off, paper of a sort is showing up in Western China, Dunhuang, probably somewhere on the Silk Road is where it gets developed because that's where you've got uh, a good dry climate for storing things. It's where you've got um, a lot of uh, spare um, uh, linen and flax and things to, to make the paper out of, and then is perfected, according to uh, historical uh, legend, by a uh, Han a court eunuch named Tsai Lung in around 105, 100 AD. So early second century paper becomes a thing in the Chinese imperial court and blows up. Uh, the Chinese, of course, have one of the great ancient bureaucracies of the world. And finally, they have enough forms to fill out. And, and that keeps them busy and excited for a good long time. Paper does not go west in our history until, uh, again, the traditional date is the Arabs capture two Chinese uh, paper makers at the Battle of Talus in 751, which uh, sort of knocks the Tang Empire back on its heels a little bit. And they carry those guys down to Baghdad and they create lots and lots of paper. And out of that grows a couple of things. Among them, the Islamic scientific, one can't quite say it, it's a revolution, but one can certainly say it's the scientific golden age because suddenly making a book is cheap and easy. And even uh, the court of Harun al-Rashid can't just make Qurans all the time. So they start copying out all the old Greek classics that they have lying around. And guess what? When you start uh, mass producing Aristotle, uh, you get a boom of knowledge and then they go hunting for more things to turn into books. And the, the culture of the book, uh, becomes inextricably linked with, uh, Islamic culture and blows up the production of, of books and libraries in, uh, the Muslim world outpaces even the production of, of great libraries in China, which is where paper began. China, meanwhile, and uh, the Muslim world both probably as a result of lots of paper develop a calligraphy as an art, one of the high arts, not just the sort of thing that you, you know, practice in your early teen years, but a, a real thing that, that people are, are, uh, feted and, uh, worshiped for. So, uh, you also have the blossoming of poetry, uh, because again, poets need a lot of scrap paper to throw out all their first drafts. The poetic tradition in, in China and the Arab world is, uh, is supercharged by the existence of paper in a way that does not happen, notably in medieval Europe. But if uh, paper comes to the Roman Empire, let us say that the uh, place that it's birthed is the is that sort of big uh, Fergana uh, Yarkand oasis area in the middle of the Silk Road. Uh, perhaps uh, paper making flows both west and east in this particular alternate. Um, maybe the Parthians fall uh, to a Roman invasion, and so the Romans are able to make immediate contact with the Silk Road and uh, get more stuff from uh, from China that way. But the first thing that I think is probably going to happen is that you don't ever lose Latin. The reason that uh, Latin dies, obviously, is that there's no agreed on way to speak it or what any of the words mean. Uh, so everyone's local Latin dialect grows up and becomes a language. In China and uh, the Muslim world, you will note that Arabic, although there's a great deal of drift between, say, Moroccan and uh, Pakistani Arabic, it's all Arabic. And it's much closer together even than, say, Italian and Romanian are. Chinese, similar things. Obviously, Cantonese is a different language than Mandarin, but there is a uh, a, a close textural 
linkage of those things. I think you see something similar happen to Latin that you might see regional Latins, uh, in, 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 uh, France or Gaul and, uh, Greece and wherever, but certainly, uh, Latin blows up, uh, and be, and does not go away. It becomes a, a, a universal language in the way that, uh, Chinese and Arabic became. Another thing, obviously, you'll have calligraphy and poetry blow up since that is what happened in both the other historical paper cases and the lost manuscripts of the ancient world won't be because suddenly it's easier and cheaper to make books just as it was in uh, Han and Tang China and in um, uh, Golden Age uh, uh, Abbasid Caliphate. And therefore more of them survive. And therefore more of them survive, right. There's just a, even if only 1% of the books survive, the fact that you have 10,000 books in a personal library as opposed to 100 books in a personal library makes a big difference. You don't have everything on the single fail point of the Library of Alexandria, which, again, papyrus, almost the only uh, material as cheap and easy as paper, and even that was not that cheap and not that easy comparatively. So the um, the, the notion of uh, classical culture Rome itself is not going to get an extra lease on life by this any more than the Han or Tang dynasties did or the Abbasid Caliphate does, but the culture is going to survive uh, more thoroughly, and you'll have uh, maybe uh, the same tendency that you got even in our history of invaders to adopt the dominant culture. You, you see that in, in China, where uh, whenever the Manchus or the Mongols take over the place, they you know, you get about one reign and then their Chinese emperors just, you know, with a slightly different ethnic component of their bodyguards. The same thing might have happened when the Germans or the Huns or whoever uh, invade a, a paper full Rome that they take Latin names and they don't keep their cool German names. And so maybe we still hear about Charlemagne, but to us, he's Carolus Magnus, which in fairness to Charlemagne is what he thought of himself in his good days anyway. But Charlemagne wouldn't, would almost certainly not have been illiterate in a world in which there were many more books, many more scribes, many more writing teachers. The whole European Dark Ages, so-called, goes away because there's no loss of knowledge. And probably, uh, along with the valuing of, of knowledge, there is a valuing of infrastructure. And certainly there would be a valuing of tax bureaucracy, which is the real reason that China and, um, uh, to a lesser extent, the caliphate don't go away is because the whole reason you invaded that place is it's rich. And if you can turn its money-making machine into money-making for you machine, there's no reason to dismantle it. Whereas in Roman times, uh, the Roman bureaucracy was a uh, fractious thing tied up in individual Romans. And when you stabbed enough of them in the head, well, you just had to make do with what you could. Right. But here you stab them on the head and then you've got all of their uh, documents to reconstruct what they're up to. Right. And all the jealous people who didn't pass the, uh, the exam to become a bureaucrat are ready to step into the place and fill out the, 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 the forms just as they always have been filled out ever since the great days of Emperor Trajan, who gave us paper. So this obviously is perhaps one of the biggest changes of the timeline that we've talked about in quite a while and uh, would result in a culture that is both recognizable because we know uh, the ancient world, but also completely different from our own history that, uh, you know, uh, Empress Elizabeth of England uh, would be, uh, would perhaps still exist, perhaps still rise to power. Uh, probably not. But if so, would be a, a quite different individual. Yes. She, uh, she, she almost certainly wouldn't have a, 
uh, a weird foreign name like Elizabeth. She'd be, you know, Gloriana or Estrella or any of her other fun Latin names. The uh, possibilities, there, there, there's literally no way to chart what happens on a cultural level if you don't have mass illiteracy, uh, not mass illiteracy, but the, the, the crash of literacy that happened following the third century collapse. If you have an intact Roman bureaucracy, an intact Roman cultural sphere, an intact Latin language uh, universe, you, you drive a lot of, of political changes that you might not even recognize that they came from that. Uh, the history of, of Rome might look like the history of China with a bunch of um, uh, interregnums between what everyone agrees are Roman dynasties. And again, it might still have the same names as ours. Uh, we might, you know, recognize that the Carolingian dynasty is the next one after, you know, whatever the dynasty was in, you know, the, the Belisarian dynasty or something. But they would all be speaking Latin and they would all be uh, ruling an empire that would call itself the Roman Empire, even more than the Holy Roman Empire does uh, in our timeline. Right. Uh, Christianity is quite different because you can print up your uh, your pamphlets and your gospels and spread them around to just ordinary people have access to uh, those documents. It isn't a uh, specialty item uh, controlled by a small uh, uh, caste structure. So the idea of there being a, a single church might not be on the boards. Uh, and uh, Well, I mean, it, it, it might be. Obviously, um, Islam managed to keep a relatively unified church, the, the Shiites and uh, other sectarians notwithstanding. So you could imagine a world where Orthodox Catholicism uh, is maintained by the same bureaucracy that's maintaining the empire as just, you know, a, a thing that goes along with empire. And so therefore there are going to be splinter sects because Protestants going to Protestant even in the seventh century AD. But the, I think that the, the sort of the, if we, if we presume that paper leads to the sort of cultural inertia is the wrong word, but the cultural uh, motive power that it had in China and uh, the Arab world, I, I think that um, the, the, the independence of, of thought about the Bible that led to Protestantism in our time, because it is not going to be, linked to a sudden explosion of literacy and an explosion of book availability, but will have basically been baked into the pudding from the beginning is, I mean, not to say the Catholic church won't look different, but the notion of a unified church, I don't think is off the table. Now, uh, things that are off the table in terms of permanently changing the timeline, it is generally your policy to uh, not go through on things that would eliminate the English language. Right. For example, I think it would be harder for me to design role-playing games in, in Latin uh, with its dense formulaic structure than in the great farrago of uh, stolen loanwords that is English. Right. No, if, if you're going to endanger Shakespeare and Jane Austen, then you have to have a, a, a red-bordered case study. I'm not going to just do it because I want to see what uh, third-century calligraphy looks like. Right. So I've forgotten whether you need to uh, ensure that the Parthians are defeated or protect the Parthians. In we order have to, to protect the Parthians. We have to keep the Silk Road sticky and bad and untransmissible westward. And that's and that was literally the Parthians' raison d'etre. That was what they saw themselves as doing. They, they were they were so great at messing up the Silk Road. The Chinese uh, legendarily sent ambassadors to the Parthians, and they said, where is uh, the kingdom we've heard of, Datsin, which is what Chinese called Rome? And the Parthians said, oh, man, you know the march you had to take to get here? Well, double it, and it's through a desert. It's terrible. 
There's no way you can get to dots in. I'll tell you what, if you've got stuff for dots in, leave it off. We'll send it along. We'll just take a tiny percentage off the top. And of course, the distance from Parthia to Antioch, which is where they would have been going is, is like a couple of hundred miles. It's nothing, but the poor Bactrian saps turned around and went back home and never once realized that the Parthians had boned them hard because the Parthians quite obviously did not want the Romans and the Chinese to link up for any number of reasons, beginning with commercial reasons and ending with military ones. And did you also then like give them the complete works of Dickens and teach them English and say, this won't exist if you uh, don't keep the barrier going. I don't think I tried uh, Dickens on the Parthians. I feel like uh, the Parthians were, were, they were, they they were oddly compelled by sort of late period uh, uh, battle fantasy. So Joe Abercrombie turns out to have been what turns the Parthians around. They're like, Ooh, that's, that's some good stuff. I like that guy. He's bloody and sorty. Well, now that the, uh, the English language has once again been saved on this podcast, it's time for us to uh, head off for another week. And a podcast that will next week, presumably, also be in English. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stop Dracula from bogarting this podcast's PlayStation alongside such backers as... Alexander Zimmerman. Luke Silburn. Michael Bowman. Tristan Knight. And Roger Edge. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Acquire our classic design, nod knowingly if you're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>